Welcome back to USMLE Listen Microbiology Chapter 4 Gram Positive Bacteria Only. Whether you're on a run or driving, this is the perfect podcast to initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. In this episode, it's all about the exam important gram positive bacteria. We're going to go over features, transmission and predisposing factors, pathogenesis, diseases associated treatment, and very important info to know. As always, you can email us at usmle at gmail.com com for your questions anything you need cleared or suggestions or on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for the usmle step one sources for usmle listen include first aid osmosis uworld and kaplan study guides this is mark labella and let's begin let's start with something easy I'm going to jog your memories a little bit. I'm going to give you the disease presentations and you give me the genus and species of that bacteria. The diseases are infective endocarditis, acute infective endocarditis to be exact, abscesses, toxic shock syndrome, gastroenteritis, supportive lesions, pyoderma and impetigo, as well as osteomyelitis. The genus and species is Staphylococcus aureus. Great job. Number two disease presentation, endocarditis in IV drug users and common in catheter and prosthetic device infections. What is my genus and species? It's Staphylococcus epidermidis. Number three, this specific bacteria is common in UTIs in newly sexually active females. What genus and species? Staph sapro or Staph saprophyticus. Number four, disease presentation, pharyngitis, scarlet fever, pyoderma and petigo, superative lesions, rheumatic fever, and acute glomerulonephritis. This one's an easy one, and it's a strep pyogenes or group A strep. Disease presentation, number five, common in neonatal septicemia and meningitis. The answer is group B strep or strep agalactiae. Disease presentation, pneumonia, adult meningitis, otitis media, and sinusitis in children. The answer, strep pneumoniae. Disease presentation, infective endocarditis and dental caries seen in. The answer is viridence group strep. Disease presentation, infective endocarditis and urinary and biliary infections. Answer, enterococcus species or group D strep or delta. Let's finish this warm-up with one last question. Which of the previous organisms that I have mentioned or we have went over that is salt tolerant? Your choices are any of the ones that we just mentioned. The answer is... The answer is... Two answers, actually. One of them is Staphylococcus aureus, and the other one is Enterococcus. Staph aureus is salt-loving and can grow on salt agar, and Enterococcus can grow in 6.5 sodium chloride. That's what differentiates Enterococcus from non-Enterococcus species. I'm going to add one more just because it's really important. Which of the aforementioned bacteria ferments mannitol? The answer? Staph aureus. Yay! Let's begin with our most important genus for the USMLE exam. Staphylococcus. Genus and features, it's a gram-positive coccyon clusters and catalase-positive, as opposed to the catalase-negative, which is streptococci. 
of medical importance, it's going to be your Staph aureus, Staph epidermidis, and Staph saprophyticus. Let's first start with our lesser staph, and I'm going to just give you four clues that you're going to get during the USMLE exam if these organisms ever come up. Staph epidermidis, which is coagulase negative and gram-positive cocci. Two, novobiosin sensitive. And three, it's infections that's common in catheters and shunts. The next one, Staph saprophyticus, coagulase negative, gram-positive cocci. Two, novobiosin resistant. And three, you have honeymoon cystitis. And when I say honeymoon cystitis or honeymoon disease, it's usually caused by cystitis that is caused by sexual activity as Staph saprophyticus is the second most common type of UTI in sexually active women. So Mark, what is the most common cause of UTI? It's E. coli. Your top three are E. coli, then Staph saprophyticus, and followed by Klebsiella pneumonia. Now let's go over Staph aureus. Distinguishing features of Staph aureus that we already went over. They're small yellow colonies on blood agar, they're beta-hemolytic, they're coagulase positive, and they're ferment mannitol. And of course, Staph aureus is salt-loving. They're normal flora, so you can see them in the nasal mucosa in the skin. And they're transmitted through hand, sneezing, surgical wounds, and contaminated food. I've had a U-world question about potato salad and custard pastries, as well as canned meats. It's so how are what are our predisposing factors for infection? Surgery or wounds, foreign bodies such as tampons, surgical packing, sutures, severe neutropenia, less than 500 microliters, intravenous drug abuse, chronic granulomatous disease, I've mentioned that a couple of times in previous podcasts, as well as cystic fibrosis. And when I say cystic fibrosis, your top three are usually number one is pseudomonas, number two is staph aureus, and number three most common is your strep pneumoniae. And pathogenesis, we have your protein A, which binds the FC component of the IgG. And staph aureus is what inhibits your phagocytosis. Enterotoxins are fast-acting and heat-stable. Toxic shock syndrome, TSSD1, is a super antigen, which we went over. Coagulase, which converts fibrinogen to fibrin clot. Cytolytic toxin, or otherwise known as your alpha toxin, which is a pore-forming toxin. And if you remember our previous podcast, it punches holes in the membranes of the cells. Exfolatants are skin exfoliating toxins, which are involved in your scalded skin syndrome and bullous impetigo. What is bullous impetigo? Those are bacterial skin infections caused by Staph aureus. They're blisters, and the connections between your uppermost layer of the skin falls apart and causes some sort of exfoliation. It's the exfoliative toxin of Staph aureus that's causing this. And with adults are immunocompromised or children and newborns, they could be experiencing kidney failure that comes along with it and can develop into a more severe, more generalized form, and that's what we call your staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome. These exfoliating toxins are serine proteases, so they specifically bind and cleave to desmoglein 1. Once again, your staph exfoliative toxin attaches and cleaves desmoglein 1, thus causing your SSSS, staph scalded skin syndrome, and your bullous impetigo. There are nine main diseases that are associated with Staph aureus. Number one is your gastroenteritis or food poisoning. There's a toxin that's ingested in preformed food. Usually appears within two to six hours after ingestion of the toxin. Your nausea, abdominal pain, vomiting, followed by diarrhea. The pathogenicity is enterotoxin A. 
It's a preformed toxin. Number two is infective endocarditis, which is acute. Yeah, fever, malaise, leukocytosis, and harp murmurs may be initially absent, but they can sometimes be there because of Staph aureus infection. It's pathogenicity, or it's caused by your fibrin platelet mesh and your cytolytic toxins. Number three abscesses and mastitis. You have your subcutaneous tenderness, redness, and swelling hot. It's caused by coagulase and your cytolysis. Number four. Toxic shock syndrome, fever, hypotension, scarlatiniform rash, discomation, particularly in the palms and the soles. Of course, you will get multi-organ failure from toxic shock syndrome and its pathogenicity, TSST1. Number five. Empetigo, aka pyoderma, erythromus papules, to bule. It's blistering is your clue here. If there's no blisters or bule, they could be caused by E. coli or strapiogenes. And this bule or this blistering is important because your exfoliatants are at work here. Unlike E. coli or strapiogenes or group B strep, you have your bullous empatigo with staph. Number six. Scalded skin syndrome. Diffuse epidermal peeling, and that's caused by your coagulase and, of course, your exfoliatants. Exfoliatants. Number seven. Pneumonia. Staph also can cause pneumonia. It's productive pneumonia with a rapid onset, high rate of necrosis, and high fatality. Nosocomial, you need a ventilator. It's usually post-influenza or IV drug users or cystic fibrosis, chronic granulomatous disease, and an important clinical feature is salmon-colored sputum. Your pathogenicity, or it's caused by your coagulase and your cytolysis. Number eight. Surgical infections. Fever with cellulitis or abscesses come after surgical infections and caused by your coagulase exfoliatants plus and minus your TSST1. And last but not least, your osteomyelitis. Staph is the most common cause of osteomyelitis. And you notice I always refer to what are the most common causes of this? Because sometimes the USMLE questions can be tricky and they ask for what is the most likely disease and you have a bunch of bacteria that could cause it, but what is the most common? And when you see osteomyelitis, think of Staph aureus except for when you see sickle cell disease, and that's usually salmonella. You get bone fever, tissue swelling, redness, lytic bone lesions on imaging, and this is caused by your cytolysis and your coagulase. If the osteomyelitis is caused by trauma, it's usually caused by pseudomonas. Now let's go to treatment. How do you treat staph infections? Usually with gastroenteritis, it's usually self-limiting with staph. But the drug of choice with Staph aureus is nafcillin or oxacillin because of widespread antibiotic resistance. For methicillin-resistant Staph or MRSA, you usually go with vancomycin. For vancomycin-resistant Staph or VRSA, VRSA, the vancomycin intermediate Staph aureus or VISA, you use quinipristin and dalfopristin. Let's clinically correlate with pneumonia and all the Staph-related hoopla that goes along with it. <laughs> So we have um, your alcoholic or IV drug users. Usually, when you see alcoholism and IV drug users, you'll think of pneumonia and Klebsiella. But the third most common with IV drug users and alcoholics with pneumonia is your Staph aureus. Aspiration pneumonia is different because it's usually caused by your anaerobes and your atypical pneumonia by mycoplasma, legionella, and chlamydia. But with cystic fibrosis pneumonia that I mentioned earlier, your top three that you're looking at is number one, one is always pseudomonas with cystic fibrosis pneumonia. Number two is staph aureus and number three is your strep pneumonia. Immunocompromised patients, 
Staph aureus pneumonia is very common, and nosocomial pneumonia, Staph aureus pseudomonas, and other gram-negative rods are very common. But post-viral pneumonia, and I just had this question on UWorld, post-viral pneumonia, most likely the answer was Staph aureus. The next one was Haemophilus influenzae, and the third one, Strep pneumoniae. Pneumonia not caused by post-influenza or other underlying conditions. Mostly, it's going to be your strep pneumoniae. Number two is your staph aureus, and number three is your haemophilus influenzae. But Mark, what about the gastroenteritis part? So this is a great time for me to go over the four scenarios of gastroenteritis because staph is one of the culprits. We have to consider the timing when it comes to gastroenteritis. And I'm going to break it down for us into four different scenarios. And it's going to be based on timing. Number one, one to eight hours after ingestions. That's almost immediate, right? So we have a preformed toxin that's causing that and that's usually caused by two bacteria your staph aureus and you're especially going to see staph aureus on salty food because out of all of these gram positive bacteria it's staph aureus that loves salt bacillus cereus is your second one and usually see that on fried rice usually no diarrhea and it's usually emetic number two 18 to 36 hours after ingestion and that's usually caused by bacteria that's produced in the intestines. It had time to grow and multiply in there. Caused by your four bacteria. Most common for 18 to 36 hours after ingestion is your ETEC or your enterotoxigenic E. coli. Number two is Vibrio in the Vibrio family, causing rice watery stools. Number three, Castrigium perfringens, of course causes gas gangrene, but it also causes diarrhea because it also has enterotoxins. Number four, Bacillus cereus. Bacillus cereus can still be a culprit. 18 to 36 hours later, although it produces emetic or preformed toxin, it also produces a diarrheal part. 18 to 36 hours later, causing watery diarrhea, but no inflammation and no fever. Number three, gastroenteritis can be caused 48 to 72 hours later. And that's usually caused by the following. Number Campylobacter is the most common. 48 to 72 hours later. Two to three days later. Campylobacter jejuni. When it's 48 to 72 hours later, you usually have inflammation and that's invasive diarrhea. Bacteria's had time to multiply in there and get you sick. And fever is usually always present. Fever. Campylobacter jejuni. Number two most common is Salmonella. Number three is Shigella. Number four is EEC or enteroinvasive E. coli. 48 to 72 hours later. Usually have bacteria in there that's going to try to invade. And because these diarrheas 48 to 72 hours later are usually inflammatory and invasive, not only is fever usually present, but sometimes you get a bleeding. I know, I know, EEC is usually the E. coli that causes bloody diarrhea, but sometimes EEC or enteroinvasive E. coli can sometimes cause bloody diarrhea because EEC or EIEC destroys cytoskeleton. 
So number four out of the four scenarios of gastroenteritis is seven to ten days after ingestion. So man, that's a long time, right? So you don't know where you could have gotten it. And trust me, it's happened to me. So usually that's caused by protozoal infection, either by Jarjalamblia, which is the number one most common cause. It's non-invasive, non-bloody, greasy, and foul-smelling. Number two is your Cryptosporidium parvum, which is found in the brush borders of your apical enterocytes of the small bowel from the ilium to the colon. Let's review the clinical and main points for the exam on the genus Staphylococcus. Staphylococcus aureus is coagulase positive and gram positive coccyne clusters. If you remember the previous podcast, it's plus, 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 right? Gram positive, coag positive, catalase positive. The onset of gastroenteritis is two to six hours after ingestions and is usually caused by salty foods and custards and potato salads. Endocarditis is usually acute. Okay, so when I say endocarditis, it's acute with staph aureus, but it's subacute with staph epidermidis. Just remember that. Toxic shock syndrome, discomating rash, fever, hypotension, bullous empatigo, pneumonia is nosocomial, typical and acute, and also caused by post-influenza. Osteomyelitis is a number one with staph aureus, except in cases of sickle cell or when hemoglobin S is mentioned. 90% of osteomyelitis is caused by staph aureus in adults. But when it comes to infants, group B strep is most common in infants along with E. coli and IV drug users. Stomyelitis by IV drug users can be caused by serratia maricens and pseudomonas aeruginosa. We've about beaten genus Staphylococcus to a pulp. Let's move on to our next bacteria. Yay! Moving on to genus Streptococcus. The general features of Streptococcus are that 1. They're gram-positive coccyne chains. They're catalase-negative. They're serogrouped using known antibodies to the cell wall carbohydrates, so that's what's called the Lansfield group antigens. Strep pneumoniae is serotyped via the capsule, while strep pyogenes is serotyped via the M protein. Strep pyogenes, otherwise known as your group A strep, remember they have the M protein for M for molecular mimicry. Let's begin with strep pyogenes or group A strep. Distinguishing features of this bacteria is that one, it's beta hemolytic, two, it's bacitracin sensitive, and it's PYR positive. PYR stands for pyrolidinyl aryl amidase. You transmit it through direct contact or respiratory droplets. The pathogenesis of strep pyogenes is that it's, it has hyaluronic acid and hyaluronic acid is non-immunogenic. Strep pyogenes or group A strep has M protein, as I mentioned earlier. It's antiphagocytic. It has M12 strains associated with acute glomerulonephritis. The M12, the M protein number 12 strain is associated with acute glomerulonephritis. Streptolysin O is immunogenic or hemolysin or cytolysin, and streptolysin S is not immunogenic but is a hemolysin and a cytolysin. Strep pyogenes is spread through streptokinase, it breaks down fibrin clot, streptococcal DNAs, which liquefies pus extension of the lesion itself. Streptococcal DNAs liquefies the pus and extends the lesion. It also has something called hyaluronidase, which hydrolyzes the ground substances of the connective tissues. 
Exotoxin A to C are pyrogenic or erythrogenic toxins. These are erythrogenic exotoxins. They're one, they're phage coated. The cells are lysogenized by a phage. And these exotoxins A to C cause fever and rash of scarlet fever. The exotoxins are also called superantigens. The superantigens happen because there's a phage that injects into the bacteria. The bacteria itself is infected by the virus causing the bacteriophage releasing exotoxins A to C. Let's correlate this with a previous podcast episode. There are five bacterial toxins whose genes are encoded in a lysogenic phage to undergo a specialized transduction, and those are group A strep, specifically the group A strep erythrogenic toxin, the botulinum toxin, the cholera toxin, the diphtheria toxin, and the shiga toxin. The mnemonic for that is ABCDs, so you remember which ones are encoded in lysogenic phages. Streptiogenes causes three main diseases. The first one is pharyngitis. It's an abrupt onset, fever, malaise, and headache, tonsillar abscesses, and tender anterior cervical lymph nodes. The second disease streptiogenes causes is scarlet fever. It has all the previous symptoms I mentioned. It has a blanching sandpaper rash. The palms and soles are usually spared from this. Circumoral pallor, strawberry tongue, and nausea and vomiting. The third disease that streptiogenes causes or group A strep causes is pyoderma or empetigo, pyogenic skin infections, and they cause honey-crusted lesions. Quelle to group A streptococcal infections after the initial disease follows as well, and there's two of them. Two sequelae. One is rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever is a sequelae of pharyngitis with group A strep, and it's caused by antibodies to heart tissue. Around two weeks post-pharyngitis, you have a fever, joint inflammation, carditis, erythema marginatum, chorea, which is later on, and that's caused by a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. The second sequelae is caused by acute glomerulonephritis, or M12 serotype. It's a sequelae of the pharyngitis or skin infection, and it's caused by immune complexes bound to glomeruli or pulmonary edema and hypertension, and you get a smoky urine. And this is a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction. And remember, type 3 involves your immune complexes. How do we diagnose this? We use an ELISA rapid strep test. You can do that, but it misses like 25% infections and you still need to culture all the negatives. You can also do antibodies, which might be better. Antibodies to the streptolysin O, they call it an ASO titer, anti-streptolysin O titer. More than 200 is significant for rheumatic fever. You treat group A strep with beta-lactam drugs or macrolides are used in case a patient has a penicillin allergy. Prophylactic antibiotics should also be considered for at least five-year post-acute rheumatic fever. Beta-lactams and bacrolides are used for prophylaxis. Next type of streptococcus is streptagalactiae, or group B strep. Its distinguishing features include the fact that it's 1. beta-hemolytic, 2. it's bacitracin resistant, 3. it's positive hyperate hydrolysis test, and 4. it's positive CAMP test. The CAMP factor is a polypeptide that complements the sphingomyelinase of Staph aureus to create an enhanced hemolytic pattern in the shape of an arrowhead. Pretty cool test. The reservoir is the human vagina, usually in 15 to 20% of women, and the gastrointestinal tract. Group B strep is transmitted in newborn infection during birth and it's increased with prolonged labor after ruptured membranes. What's the pathogenesis? Three things here. The capsule itself, the beta-hemolysin, 
And the third one is CAMP factor. Group B strep is the most common causal agent of neonatal septicemia and meningitis. How do we prevent group B strep? You prevent it by prophylaxis and delivery, and women with positive vaginal or rectal culture of group B strep, you give them prophylaxis, or even histories with recent infection or prolonged labors after membrane ruptures with ampicillin or penicillin as drugs of choice. You can also give them clindamycin or erythromycin for penicillin allergies. Our next streptococcus is strep pneumoniae. This one is alpha hemolytic. It is oxygen sensitive, lancet-shaped diplococci, and it's lysed by bile. The reservoir is the human upper respiratory tract, and it's transmitted through respiratory droplets, not considered highly communicable, and it often colonizes in the nasopharynx without causing disease. Strep pneumo is normally okay, but it is the number one cause of meningitis in adults. So what are the predisposing factors? It's antecedent to influenza infection. If you have COPD, if you have CHF or congestive heart failure, if you have alcohol abuse, or if you're asplenic, you're predisposed to strep pneumonia infections. Having no spleen or a recent splenectomy puts you in danger of septicemia from strep pneumonia. So why does it make us so sick? Strep pneumonia has a polysaccharide capsule, which is a major virulence factor. This capsule is a big deal. It has Ig protease to colonize. It has tachoic acid. It has pneumolysin O or hemolysin or cytolysin and the pneumolysin O, the alpha hemolysis that you see on a blood agar plate. This pneumolysin O, it damages the respiratory epithelium. It inhibits leukocyte respiratory bursts and inhibits classical complement fixation. In a typical pneumonia, if you want to see the most common cause, that's strep pneumonia, especially in the sixth decade of life. You're gonna get chills, you're gonna get fever, lower consolidation, and blood-tinged, rusty sputum. With adult meningitis, it's also the most common cause. Peptidoglycan and tachoic acids are highly inflammatory in the central nervous system. So we already have strep pneumo as the most common cause of meningitis in adults and the most common cause of typical pneumonia. There's another most common cause of strep pneumonia, and that is otitis media and sinusitis in children. How do we diagnose? We do the gram stain of the CSF or a PCR of the CSF, you look for the Quay-Lung reaction, which is positive, the swelling of the capsule with the addition of a specific anti-serum. How do we treat this? You have bacterial pneumonia, so what you'd give is you'd give macrolides, right? Your macrolides, for example, are azithromycin, clarithromycin, erythromycin. And you also, if it's adult meningitis, you give a ceftriaxone or cefotaxime. Vancomycin is added if penicillin-resistant strep pneumonia has been reported in the community. And otitis media in sinusitis in children, you give them amoxicillin or erythromycin for allergic individuals. And if you can't give them the metalactam, you can give them the macrolide, erythromycin. There's also a strep pneumo vaccine. For pediatric, you give them a PCV or pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, 13 of the most common serotypes, and it's conjugated to diphtheria toxoid. It prevents invasive disease, but for adults, 
you give them the PPV, which is the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. It includes 23 of the most common capsular serotypes, and it's recommended for all adults above the age of 65 and any at-risk individual. Again, PCV, or the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine to kids or pediatrics, and adults above 65 are recommended for the PPV, the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. The adult one is not conjugated, so there's poor memory. Moving on to our viridin streptococci, or viridin group strep. Important distinguishing features for viridin streptococci are is that it's alpha hemolytic as well, and it's optogen resistant. Strep pneumoniae is sensitive. Viridin streptococci is optogen resistant. Viridin streptococci, which is your strep sanguis and strep mutants, usually lives in the human oropharynx. Viridin strept has, though, it has dextrin, which is a biofilm mediate adherence to the tooth enamel, and it also attaches to and latches on to your damaged heart valves and cause vegetation. Viridin streptococci's growth in vegetation protects it from the immune system. As you may have already heard, viridin streptococci causes dental caries, which is caused usually by S. mutants. The mutants cause tooth decay, and it's caused by the dextrin-mediated adherence or glues to the oral flora onto the teeth. It forms a plaque, and it causes your dental caries. Earlier, we talked about acute endocarditis being caused by Staph aureus. Viridin's group strep causes subacute infective endocarditis. So the the symptoms of infective endocarditis would be malaise, fatigue, anorexia, night sweats, weight loss, splinter hemorrhages on your fingernails, and your predisposing conditions would be a damaged or a prosthetic heart valve and a dental and and you can it could also be from dental work that you usually receive without prophylactic antibiotics. Having extremely poor oral hygiene can also cause your infective endocarditis. Brush your teeth, everyone. <laughs> Treatment is penicillin G with aminoglycosides for endocarditis, and you prevent it with prophylactic antibiotics before your dental work, especially for people with damaged heart valves. The last gram-positive cocci I'll go over is Enterococcus. It's catalase-negative and PYR-positive. Important species are Enterococcus faecalis and Enterococcus facium. Distinguishing features include group D is gram-positive cocci in chains. Again, PYR positive. It's catalase negative and it hydrolyzes esculent in 40% bile and 6.5 sodium chloride. Bile esculent hydrolysis is diagnostic for group D strep or enterococcus. It's usually in the human flora, urethra, and female genital tract. It has bile or salt tolerance, which allows it to survive in the bowel and gallbladder. During medical procedures in the GI or genitourinary tract, enterococcus faecalis enters the bloodstream and goes into previously damaged heart valves and causes endocarditis. It can cause urinary and biliary tract infections, infective subacute endocarditis in persons often elderly with damaged heart valve. It's important to remember that all strains of enterococcus are resistant to penicillin. You can have some vancomycin-resistant strain of enterococcus facium or enterococcus faecalis, which have no reliably effective treatment. In general, for low-level resistance, use ampicillin, gentamicin, or streptomycin. Van 
A strains have UDP and acetylmuramyl pentapeptide with a terminal D-alanine replaced with D-alanyl D-lactate, which functions in cell wall synthesis does not bind to vancomycin. But for prophylaxis, you use penicillins and gentamicin in patients with damaged heart valves prior to intestinal or urinary tract manipulations. Let's finish this off by doing a little review. Because repetition is key for keeping it in the noggin. Group A streptococcus is catalase negative, beta hemolytic, bacitracin sensitive, and gram positive cocci. Group A strep or streptopyogenes causes pharyngitis. But with that type of pharyngitis, you'll get abrupt onset, tonsillar abscesses. You also get scarlet fever with group A strep, which causes blanching, sandpaper rash, and strawberry tongue. Group A strep causes empatigo, honey-crusted lesions. So you got those diseases, but you also get clinical sequelae with group A strep or strep pyogenes. Those two are rheumatic fever, and with the rheumatic fever, it's after streptococcal pharyngitis, and you will see an increase in your ASO titers. With acute glomerulonephritis caused by streptococcus pyogenes, you may get that after streptococcal skin or throat infection. It'll cause hypertension, edema, and smoky urine. And remember, your rheumatic fever is by type 2, and your acute glomerulonephritis is type 3, hypersensitivity. Strep agalactiae is gram-positive, catalase-negative, beta-hemolytic, bacitracin-resistant, and CAMP-test-positive. It's number one in neonatal meningitis and septicemia, especially in prolonged labors. One test I didn't get to emphasize on is that group B strep hydrolyzes hippurate, right? The B is a hypocrite. That's how I remember it. The B is a hypocrite. It's positive for hippurate hydrolysis, group B strep, otherwise known as streptogalactiae. Now let's move on to strep pneumoniae. It's gram-positive, catalase-negative, alpha-hemolytic, soluble in bile, and it's optician-sensitive. It causes pneumonia, which is typical, and it's the most common cause, and its pneumonia has rusty sputum. It's also number one in meningitis, otitis media, and sinusitis. It is the most common cause in children. Bacterial pneumonia, such as streptococcus pneumoniae, elicits neutrophils, arachidonic acid metabolites, which causes the acute inflammatory mediators, and that's how we feel pain and fever. Pneumococcus produces a lober pneumonia with a productive cough. Again, streptomoniae causes lobar pneumonia, one lobe with productive cough. It grows well on agar and, and is very responsive to penicillin. You know what else is responsive to penicillin is viridens streptococci. It's gram-positive, catalase negative, alpha-hemolytic, optogen-resistant, bile-insoluble. It's not soluble with bile, insoluble, viridens. It causes plaque and dental caries. If you don't brush your teeth, you can get subacute bacterial endocarditis by viridens strep, and it's usually caused by S. mutans. You're predisposed to that if you have pre-existing damage to heart valves, which follows dental work. And one thing I didn't mention about viridens group strep is that there's one called strep sanguinis. Strep sanguinis makes dextrins that bind to fibrin platelet aggregates on damaged heart valves. 
Strebs. And Strebs sanguinis is the major one that will cause that subacute bacterial endocarditis. So with sanguinis, think of blood. And with sanguinis, also think of there's a lot of blood in the heart. Sanguine. In Spanish, it's sangre. The one bugger out of all these that we've gone over so far is one of them has really good resistance to penicillin. Enterococcus faecalis or Enterococcus facium is gram positive, catalase negative, hydrolyzes esculin in 40% bile and 6.5% sodium chloride. The bile esculin agar turns black because of the bile esculin hydrolysis. It's diagnostic for this. Enterococcus can cause urinary or biliary tract infections in elderly males, and it causes subacute bacterial endocarditis as well, just like viridens, but this one, it's mostly seen in elderly males that follows GI or GU surgery with pre-existing heart valve damage. Okay, so do you know how Enterococcus loves 6.5 sodium just like Staph aureus does? Well, Enterococcus has a non-Enterococcus version and that's the one that doesn't grow in the 6.5 sodium chloride and that's the one with a negative PYR status, a negative PYR test, and they call that non-enterococcus. And some examples are Streptococcus bovis, it's gram-positive cocci that colonizes the gut. Streptogalolyticus, which is a strep bovis biotype 1, can cause bacteremia and subacute endocarditis and is associated with colon cancer. Again, strep bovis, strep gallolyticus, which is strep bovis type 1, is associated with colon cancer. And how we can remember that association is, is strep bovis comes is, is basically cow, right? And you eat a lot of steak and red meat, you can get colon cancer from that. And this is how we can associate it. Strep bovis, colon cancer, and subacute bacterial endocarditis. Yay! Now it's time to go over the different gram-positive rods. And gram-positive rods consist of Bacillus, Clostridium, Listeria, Carinobacterium, Actinomyces, Nocardia, Mycobacterium. Let's talk about spores. Among these seven, two of them are spore-forming or create spores. And those are Bacillus and Clostridium. Two of them, two of the seven are anaerobic, while the rest are aerobic. Your bacillus is aerobic, listeria, carinobacterium, nocardia, and mycobacterium. But two who do not like oxygen, one we know of is clostridium, and the second one is actinomyces. Four out of the seven create exotoxins, and that's the bacillus, clostridium, listeria, and carinobacterium. Only two of them are facultative intracellular. We know that listeria is a facultative intracellular, and we also know that mycobacterium is a facultative intracellular. And to speak about all of the facultative intracellulars that we have to remember, or that we should remember for the exam, we have your obligate intracellulars and you have your facultative intracellulars. Your obligate intracellulars. None of them are here, which is your RCC, really chilly and cold, Rickettsia chlamydia coxiella. And facultative intracellular. The mnemonic that we have to remember is some nasty bugs may live facultatively. S for Salmonella, N for Neisseria, B for Brucella, M for Mycobacterium, L for Listeria, F for Francisella, L for Legionella, and Y for Yersinia pestis. Two of that belong in this list of gram-positive rods, which are Listeria and Mycobacterium. We need to worry about three of them in terms of our immunocompromised patients. That's Listeria, Nocardia, and Mycobacterium. So two of them are acid fast. 
I know you know that mycobacterium is acid fast, but which other one is acid fast? And that is nocardia. Nocardia is actually considered partially acid fast. And only two of them are branching rods, and that would be nocardia and actinomyces. And how do you differentiate the two? A big one is whether the bacteria is aerobic or anaerobic. Nocardia is aerobic, nocardia likes oxygen, while actinomyces is anaerobic. Moving on to genus Bacillus. So Bacillus are gram-positive rods, spore-forming, and aerobic. Two of them are important, which is your Bacillus anthracis and Bacillus cereus. First of the Bacillus is Bacillus anthracis. It's large, boxcar-like, gram-positive, spore-forming rods. The capsule is polypeptide, which is made up of polydeglutamate and has a potential for biowarfare. The reservoir for Bacillus anthracis is usually your, the animals, their skins, and the soils. Transmission is contact with infected animals or inhalation of spores. That's why it's important to know in bioterrorism. Pathogenesis. The capsule of the bacillus bacteria is polypeptide, antiphagocytic, and immunogenic. The anthrax toxin is divided into three protein components. The first one is a protective antigen, otherwise known as the B component. The B component mediates the entry of either the LF or the EF, into the eukaryotic cells. So the LF stands for the lethal factor. That's the one that kills the cells. Edema factor is a third component, and that is the one that is an adenylate cyclase. Think back to when we talked about four bacteria that increase your adenylate cyclase levels or activate your adenylate cyclase, thus increasing your cyclic AMP. Bacillus anthracis is one of them. It's calmodulant activated like the pertussis adenylate cyclase toxin. So if someone asks something along the lines with what bacteria activates adenylate cyclase like Bordetella pertussis does? And the answer is the edema factor of Bacillus anthracis. They activate they are activated by calmodulin. Calmodulin. So the diseases that are caused by Bacillus anthracis are cutaneous anthrax, which has 5% mortality. It creates a papule, a papule with vesicles that are malignant pustules. They have essential necrosis, which is an S-char, with erythematous border, often with painful regional lymphadenopathy, and you will get fever in 50% of those affected. Anthrax literally means coal black, and that's what stands for those black lesions, which are the S-char. The pulmonary disease of anthrax is otherwise known as wool sorters disease and it got its name because they found it in the wool of certain animals and the people that basically sort wool got the disease the pulmonary disease of anthrax is extremely deadly it causes life-threatening pneumonia cough fever malaise and ultimately facial edema dyspnea diaphoresis cyanosis and shock with mediastinal hemorrhagic lymphadenitis and a third disease is called and for a third disease anthrax can also cause gastrointestinal issues. We like to call gastrointestinal anthrax, which is rare, and it causes edema and blockage of the GI tract, which can occur with vomiting, diarrhea, which is bloody, and that also has high mortality. The diagnosis is you do a gram stain, you culture the blood, you do respiratory secretions or the lesions. You can also do serology and your PCR. You treat anthrax with ciprofloxacin or doxycycline. Ciprofloxacin, 
2017, which is a fluoroquinolone. And remember, fluoroquinolones, to correlate with your pharmacology, attack the DNA topoisomerases, or your DNA gyrase. While your doxycycline is, of course, a tetracycline, which attacked the 30S subunit of the bacterial ribosomes. It's important to know that despite early treatment, persons infected with inhalation or gastrointestinal or meningeal anthrax have a very poor prognosis. There are genes that encode resistance to penicillin and doxycycline that have been transferred to bacillus anthracis. So remember, we watch out for antibiotic resistance. The good news is that we can prevent it with a toxoid vaccine, AVA, a cellular vaccine, adsorbed. It's given to individuals in high-risk occupations. The next type of bacillus is Bacillus cereus. Bacillus cereus also creates spores and it's found in nature. Transmission is foodborne. Bacillus cereus is majorly associated with fried rice from Chinese restaurants and associated with food being kept warm but not hot, such as buffets. Think about that next time you go to a buffet. And its pathogenesis is caused by two possible toxins. In one to six hours, if you get vomity in one to six hours, you can thank the emetic toxin caused by by Bacillus cereus. It's similar to Staph aureus with the vomiting and the diarrhea, but that's associated with the fried rice. The second type of toxin, which you will get about 18 hours later, and we went over this earlier, we have a diarrheal toxin 18 hours later that is produced in vivo. So how does Bacillus cereus make you poop and give you watery diarrhea 18 hours later? It's a similar toxin to E. coli, actually, the labile toxin, and that it increases cyclic AMP, causing watery diarrhea. Diarrhea. Diseases include gastroenteritis, non-bloody, plus and minus of vomiting. You can diagnose this based on clinical grounds. The good thing about Bacillus cereus is that it's usually self-limiting. You can culture in the gram stain if you have, the, if you find the food that you implicate the cause of this, but it is usually self-limiting. The next gram-positive rod or gram-positive bacilli on our list is Clostridium. Clostridium, of course, is your gram-positive rod that is spore-forming and anaerobic. Clostridium does not lack oxygen. All right, so what are the important clostridium? We have one, which is Clostridium tetany. Clostridium tetany is made up of large gram-positive spore-forming rods that are anaerobes and produces the tetanus toxin. You can see that in soil, and you usually get it with puncture wounds or human bites, and it requires low tissue oxygenation. The spores germinate in the tissues that produce tetanus toxin. It's an exotoxin that's also called tetanus spasmin. Tetanospasmin. It's carried intraaxonally to the CNS and it binds to ganglioside receptors, blocking the release of what? Your inhibitory mediators. And those inhibitory mediators are glycine and GABA at the spinal synapses. Clostridium tetany or tetanus causes excitatory neurons to be unopposed, right? Because your inhibitory is being stopped. Your inhibitory mediators are being blocked, stopped, whatever. And then they cause an extreme muscle spasm. One of the most, this toxin is one of the most toxic substance known. And it causes your tetanus, your rhesus sardonicus, opisthotinus, and extreme muscle spasms. And some people will ask, Mark, what is Rhesus sardonicus? Rhesus sardonicus is otherwise known as a rictus grin. It's a sustained spasm of the facial muscles that appears like you're grinning. A sardonic laugh, right? It's sardonicus. You're grinning. Other causes of Rhesus sardonicus are... Besides tetanus, you can get it from strychnine poisoning or Wilson's disease. And some are also asking... Mark, what is opisthotinus? 
because you know sometimes the USMLE is not going to say, oh, this person has opisthotonus, so I know the answer. Our opisthotonus is a symptom of severe muscular spasms. You'll find severe hyperextension, spasticity, bridging or arching positions, and an extreme arched position that is opposed. I mean, let's put it in really layman's terms. Opisthotonus is a condition where a person just holds their body in an abnormal position, like in a rigid-like way, like spasms are real and dangerous with tetanus. And the diagnosis is you do a primary clinical diagnosis. It's usually clinical because it's really hard to isolate these darn clostridium tetani. Once you expose them to oxygen, they curl up into their own little spore and live forever. The treatment of actual tetanus though is hyperimmune globulin or hyperimmune human globulin or TIG to neutralize the toxin plus you give them metronidazole or penicillin and you give them something that'll help them a little bit with all that muscle spasm spasmolytic drugs such as your diazepam. You debride whatever wound needs it and you delay the closure to expose it to oxygen. How do you prevent this? You get the tetanus toxoid. It's a formaldehyde inactivated toxin. It's a, most disinfectants, as you know, have poor sporicidal action. So wounds are very important that you take care of them properly. You give a tetanus immunoglobulin if, if it's a blunt or missile wound. It's more than one centimeter deep. It's a burn. It's a frostbite. You get a tetanus shot if you have devitalized tissue that is present with contaminants. And dude, if you get a gunshot wound, obviously you need to have a tetanus shot. So there is an indication if you have to give the TIG or the hyperimmune human globulin for the tetanus. If it's not tetanus prone, it's the cut has to be linear, one centimeter deep without devitalized tissue and without contaminants for less than six hours old. So you just get the vaccine. But if your tetanus prone, the wound management, plus you give both a vaccine and the hyperimmune globulin or the TIG if you're tetanus prone. And you are under the tetanus prone category if you have a blunt or missile trauma, burns, frostbites, if the cut is more than one centimeter deep, devitalized tissue is present, plus the contaminants like your dirt, your saliva, and any wound that is more than six hours old. For non-tetanus prone wounds, you give a vaccine if you're more than 10 years since your last booster. But for tetanus prone wounds, vaccine is administered if more than five years since your last booster. Now moving on to Clostridium botulinum. Distinguishing features is yes, it's anaerobic and yes, it's a gram-positive spore-forming rod. Reservoir is soil or dust. Transmission is foodborne traumatic implantation. And you see Clostridium botulinum in home canned alkaline vegetables, floppy baby syndrome in infant with flaccid paralysis and reversible flaccid paralysis. Pathogenesis of your Clostridium botulinum includes the spores survive in the soil and the dust and they germinate in moist, warm, nutritious, non-acidic, and anaerobic conditions. Botulinum toxin is an AB polypeptide neurotoxin is an AB an A portion and a B portion. Actually, it's a series of seven antigenically different type A and type B, which are most common. It's coded by a prophage. Remember the lysogenized prophage, bacteriophage that you get, ABCDs? ABCDs? It's highly toxic, heat labile, which is unlike staph, it's 10 minutes or 60 degrees. And its mechanism of action is that it's absorbed by the gut and carried by the blood to the peripheral nerve synapses. It blocks the release of acetylcholine at the myoneural junction, resulting in a reversible flaccid paralysis. It's reversible. That's good. But bad for the people who have to keep getting Botox injections. 
With adults, you usually get Clostridium botulinum because you ate the preformed toxin from the canned food or the home canned food that you're making or the smoked fish because smoked fish is very alkaline. Infants get the botulinum toxin because they ingest the spores. They can get it from house dust that's growing in the soil into their GI, GI tract or they can get it from a certain yummy thing called honey. So those mamas out there giving honey to their babies, that's a no-no. That's a no-no. You don't give honey on your first year. So when you're an adult, what are your symptoms if you get Clostridium botulinum? One to two days of weakness, dizziness, blurred vision, and flaccid paralysis. Again, reversible. Plus and minus the diarrhea, nausea, the vomiting. The toxin is usually demonstrated in food or serum. The treatment for botulism in an adult is just respiratory support and a trivalent ABE antitoxin. Adults, all the adults out there, you can prevent botulism by proper canning or don't can at all or you heat all of your canned foods. If you're a bebe or a baby, your symptoms include constipation, limpness, flaccid paralysis, which again is reversible, diplopia, dysphagia, weak feeding or crying, and may lead to respiratory arrest in babies and infants. You can get the toxin demonstrated in the stool or the serum of the baby, of the bebe. The treatment for infants is respiratory support, intensive care. They can be administered with hyperimmune human serum. They can be given antibiotics. Antibiotics are generally not used and may worsen or prolong your infant botulism. Remember, no honey for the first year. You can also get botulism from traumatic implantation of the spores and that's usually seen in like drug users. The toxin is produced in vivo which is a toxic infection. You get the same symptoms, but what you need to do with that is you need to debride the wound. Wood debridement is important, and you don't close it, of course, because Clostridium is scared of oxygen. Amoxicillin and antitoxin and respiratory support are given. Another Clostridium that we will go over is Clostridium perfringens. It's a large gram-positive spore-forming rod. The spores are rare in tissue and they're non-modal. They're anaerobic, as all Clostridium are. But what they cause is a stormy fermentation in milk media. And with Clostridium perfringens, you get a double zone of hemolysis. Clostridium perfringens is usually seen in human colon and soil, and it's foodborne and it can cause traumatic implantation. Clostridium perfringens is scary looking. That wound is going to look like there's gas inside of it, and just Google Clostridium perfringens gas gangrene and you will not forget what it causes, on top of the tummy ache that it can cause you. So let's talk about pathogenesis of Clostridium perfringens. Of course, great spores that germinate under the anaerobic or non-oxygenated conditions in the tissues. The vegetative cells though, they produce something called an alpha toxin. And we talked about this and you should remember what that alpha toxin does. And that is, it is a lecithinase. The alpha toxin is otherwise known as phospholipase C. Phospholipase C. It disrupts your cell membranes and thus damaging your red blood cells, your plates, your platelets, your white blood cells, endothelial cells, and it causes massive hemolysis and tissue destruction, like huge. Also causes hepatic toxicity. You identify that by a Nagler reaction, a little something called a Nagler reaction, which is an egg yolk plate agar. 
I just told you that clostridium perfringens also causes you a tummy ache, right? And that's because of a certain something called the enterotoxin. So one is alpha toxin, the other one is enterotoxin. And that's produced in intestines during food poisoning. It disrupts your ion transport, causing watery diarrhea, cramps similar to E. coli, and it usually resolves within 24 hours. So the gas gangrene that it causes is otherwise known as myonecrosis, necrosis of the muscles, contamination from the wound soil, acute and increasing pain at the wound side, you get your tense tissue, you get your exudate, and you get a fever, you get tachycardia, diaphoresis, pallor, and unfortunately, it is rapid and high mortality rate. The food poisoning part of it is seen in the reheated meat dishes and the organism grows to high numbers from eight to 24 hour incubation period. So the enterotoxin is produced in the gut. It's self-limiting, non-inflammatory, and just causes watery diarrhea. The diagnosis is just clinical with this. So it's very important that we have to find out right away and make sure that it is it, it is clostridium perfringens. Sometimes it doesn't look like it, and it's so, sometimes it looks like your run-of-the-mill cellulitis in the beginning, but within just a few hours, it goes into full-grown, full-blown gas gangrene or myonecrosis. We have to treat the gangrene with debridement, delayed closure, keeping it open, and you give them clindamycin and penicillin and use a hyperbaric chamber to make sure that the oxygen or that 100% oxygen can seep into the tissues and make that clostridium perfringens afraid of you. The prevention is extensive debridement of the wound plus your administration of your penicillins. Clostridium perfringens does do a good job of reacting to penicillins, but sometimes it's too late. That's why the mortality rate is too high. Our last clostridium is Clostridium difficile. Its reservoir is the human colon or the GI tract. The transmission is endogenous. And with Clostridium difficile, you have two different toxins we need to worry about. Toxin A, enterotoxin damaging mucosa leading to fluid increase. It's a granulocyte attractant. And the toxin B of Clostridium difficile is a cytotoxin or cytopathic toxin. The disease for Clostridium difficile, it's antibiotic associated. Yes, you can get a bacteria with the antibiotics that you're taking and the most common culprit of that is clindamycin. Clindalinda cause Clostridia difficile. Difficult Clindalinda. Uh, joking aside, you can also use cephalosporins, amoxicillin, and their symptoms include diarrhea, colitis, or pseudomembranous colitis, which is yellow plaques on your colon. How do you diagnose it? Culture is not diagnostic because the organism is part of your normal flora, but you do a stool exam for the toxin production, and you can use ELISA for that, or you can use a PCR for that. All right, something that First Aid or Kaplan don't mention, but UWorld does, is the type of testing that's involved, and I got this because I got a question out of UWorld for it. There are two tests for your Clostridium difficile infection. One is a nucleic acid amplification test, which uses PCR, or what I mentioned earlier, ELISA or enzyme immunoassay test. And the first one, the nucleic acid amplification test or PCR, it detects the presence of toxigenic strains. The test is highly sensitive and specific, but it does not distinguish the active toxin production and may lead to overdiagnosis in asymptomatic carriers. The other test in an, is an enzyme immunoassay test and it uses antibodies to detect the Clostridium difficile antigens or toxins. The enzyme immunoassay for bacterial toxins is highly specific, right? So so there's less false positive when they say specific, but it has 
poor sensitivity, so it's harder to detect it. In contrast, the EIA for glutamate dehydrogenase, which is a bacteria antigen expressed by all Clostridium difficile isolates, has better sensitivity. But the best test and considered the test that's most sensitive is what? is the NAAT, the Nucleic Acid Amplification Test, otherwise known as your polymerase chain reaction test, to detect the genes that are present in your toxigenic strains, such as your toxin B encoding gene. Because remember, the toxin B is the one that's causing that cytotoxin and the cytopathic bad, bad jujus, bad hoopla. The toxin A is an enterotoxin that damages the mucosa, leading to fluid increase and granulocyte attractant. In severe disease, we have to give them metronidazole. We use vancomycin only if no other drug is available because we have to avoid selecting for your vancomycin-resistant normal flora. Again, too much antibiotics is bad. If you get a mild disease, you discontinue other antibiotic therapy. You just prevent this, just prevent this by preventing over-prescription of your broad-spectrum antibiotics and start using your limited-spectrum drugs first. In a nursing home setting though, patients who are symptomatic should be isolated. You also autoclave the bedpans because that'll kill the spores. <laughs> couple more gram-positive rods or bacilli. Let's talk about listeria. Alright, we know that's gram-positive, non-spore-forming, facultative intracellular. Listeria likes to have tumbling motility. I like to remember that I do a little tumble with Listerine because it's so cool or cold. It feels so cold in my mouth. Listeria actually does its motility even in cold. Less than 37 degrees Celsius. Listeria can be mistaken for gram-positive cocci, but these are gram-positive rods. They're gram-positive beta-hemolic bacilli, cold growth, facultative intracellular. Some nasty bugs live facultatively. They're foodborne, so they're coming from things like deli foods. And you have transplacental granulomatosis in fatsympatica. That's a fancy word of saying be careful with pregnant women. Listeria is the third most common cause of meningitis in newborns. Listeria is one of the main causes of neonatal septicemia. You can also get listeria meningitis in renal transplant or cancer patients. And what listeria are we talking about? It's listeria monocytogenes. You know why there's tumbling motility in the broth? There's actin jet motility in the cells. The reservoir is widespread. You can see it in animals, in their GI tracts and genital tracts, as well as unpasteurized milk products, plants, and soil. I say cold growth because you can see that in soft cheeses, your deli meats, are huge. Cabbages are coleslaw and you can see it in hot dogs. It's of course foodborne, it's vertical transmission, or it can be across the placenta. What's giving listeria so much power? There is listeriolysin, O, a beta-hemolysin. What that does, it facilitates a rapid egress from the phagosome, so it literally escapes your phagosome, this is a sneaky little bugger, and evades killing when lysosomal contents are dumped into the phagosome. It jets directly by acting filament formation from the cytoplasm to another cell. Kids are very susceptible because you have immunologic immaturity that predisposes to serious infection. Listeriosis peaks in the summertime. Healthy adults and children are generally asymptomatic or just they have diarrhea with a low percent carriage. But pregnant women, they have symptomatic carriage. They can have 
septicemia characterized by fever and chills, and it can cause the placenta in septicemia. If it's neonatal, you have the early onset, which causes granulomatosis infantiseptum. In utero transmission, sepsis with high mortality disseminated granulomas with central necrosis. If it's a late onset neonatal disease, it's two to three weeks after birth from fecal exposure, meningitis with septicemia. In immunocompromised patients, septicemia and meningitis is the most common clinical presentation. Listeria meningitis is the most common cause of meningitis in renal transplant patients and adults with cancer. The diagnosis for this, you do a blood or CSF culture, CSF wet mount or gram stain. You treat it with ampicillin. You do ampicillin plus gentamicin for listeria for immunocompromised patients. So think, listeria or listerine in my mouth, I do a little tumble because it's so cold in my mouth and I feel amped because you give ampicillin with gentamicin for your immunocompromised patients. I mean, the best way to prevent this is that it affects what? Pregnant women and immunocompromised patients. So both pregnant women and immunocompromised patients should not be eating cold deli foods. It's the third most common meningitis in newborns. It's probably just a good idea to go over the common causes of meningitis for our memory's sake. In newborns, zero to six months, right? Newborns. Group B strep is number one, number two is E. coli, and the series is number three. But in children, six months to six years, the most common cause is strep pneumo, followed by Neisseria meningitidis, and then Haemophilus influenza type B. Group B strep is number four, and enterovirus is number five. For six years old to 60 years old, Neisseria meningitidis is your number one cause of meningitis, followed by strep pneumo, enteroviruses, and then your herpes simplex virus. But above six years old, when you start getting elderly, your immune system isn't as strong as it used to be, Listeria sneaks back in there. Strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitidis, Haemophilus influenza B, group B strep, and then it's your listeria. So newborns and elderly are very susceptible to listeria infections. But if you ask, what about patients with AIDS? What's the most common cause of meningitis? The most common cause of meningitis in patients with AIDS is cryptococcus. It's cryptococcal meningitis. In AIDS, chronic meningitis or episodes of acute meningitis for which no cause is found can occur at any time during the course. It's very unfortunate because they can either be a community-acquired bacterial or viral meningitis, but it's most commonly cryptococcal, and then tuberculosis, then syphilitic, and listeria species are also on the top of the list. Usually, with any meningitis, you actually give ceftriaxone and vancomycin, but if it's a listeria form of meningitis, you add what? You add uh, you add amp, you amp it up with listeria, or listerine, right? You amp it up with ampicillin, and we add even more, a plus one it with gentamicin if the patient is immunocompromised. Genus Carinobacterium is our next one. Gram-positive rods, non-sporming aerobic. Our important one here is Carinobacterium diphtheria, and the diphtheroids are normal flora. Alright, so let's go ahead to Carinobacterium diphtheriae. Distinguishing features include gray to black colonies, their club-shaped gram-positive rods, and they're arranged in V or L shapes on your gram stain. Carinobacterium diphtheria has these granules called volutin, 
V-O-L-U-T-I-N. Volutin. Produced on Loeffler coagulated serum medium stain metachromatically. And that the toxin producing strains have beta prophage carrying genes for the toxin lysogeny. Beta carinophage is what it's called. The phage from one patient with diphtheria can infect normal non-toxigenic diphtherioid of another person and cause diphtheria. Recall, all right, so pop quiz in specialized transduction, you have five specialized transduction during an excision event caused by the lysogenic phage infecting the bacterium and incorporating its viral DNA into the bacterial chromosome. There are five bacterial toxins that are encoded in the lysogenic phage, and those are... A, B, C, D's. A, B, C, D, S. A for group A strep, which is a group A erythrogenic toxin. B for botulinum toxin. C for cholera toxin. D for diphtheria toxin. And the S is for the shiga shiga toxin. Shiga. The reservoir for diphtheria is your throat and your nasopharynx, while your transmission is bacterium or phage via respiratory droplets. Diphtheria can cause disease in a number of ways. First, the organism, though, is not invasive, so it colonizes your epithelium or oropharynx or your skin cutaneous diphtheria. But it has a big something called diphtheria toxin. And remember, A and B component for this one. The active part or the A part inhibits protein synthesis by adding ADP ribose to your elongation factor 2 or EF2. Alright, pop quiz, which one's the other one involved with elongation factor 2? And if you know it, the answer is Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Carina bacterium diphtheriae, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa both inactivate elongation factor 2. So it affects your oropharynx with dirty gray pseudomembranes made up of dead cells and fibrin exudates and bacterial pigment. Its extension is into the larynx or the trachea causing obstruction and it can also affect your systemic circulation causing heart and nerve damage. The disease obviously is diphtheria. Your symptoms are going to be sore throat with pseudomembrane, bull neck, potential respiratory obstruction, myocarditis, cardiac dysfunction, recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy, and lower limb polyneuritis. So you do an elect test to document the toxin production. The toxin produced by the toxin producing strains diffuses away from the growth. The antitoxin diffuses away from the strip of filter paper. And there there will be precipitin lines formed at the zone of equivalence during the elect test. So you treat Carina bacterium diphtheriae with erythromycin and an antitoxin. For endocarditis, intravenous penicillin and aminoglycosides are given. Again, for your treatment of endocarditis, intravenous penicillin and aminoglycosides are given for four to six weeks. You just prevent Carina bacterium diphtheriae by your toxoid vaccine. The toxoid vaccine is formaldehyde modified toxin and it's still immunogenic but with reduced toxicity. It's part of your DTAP or your DTP or your TD boosters in 10-year intervals. The next one is genus Actinomyces. Actinomyces israeli is the important one. It's anaerobic, gram-positive branching rods. It's non-acid fast. Where we've got a patient with mycetoma on the jawline or spread from an IUD. And it has sulfur granules in anaerobic, gram-positive, non-acid fast branching rod. What do you normally see Actinomyces in? It's human, right? It's a normal flora of your gingival crevices and your female genital tract. The transmission is endogenous 
illness, so you get invasive growth in your tissues with a compromised oxygen supply. Because it's anaerobic, it doesn't like oxygen. Wherever there's compromised oxygen supply, actinomyces likes to thrive. It's generally not painful, but it's very invasive. It penetrates all tissues, including your bone. So what you get is tissue swelling, draining abscesses of the sinus tracts with sulfur granules. These are yellow, hard microcolonies in the exudate that can be used for microscopy or culture. So you'll usually see actinomyces in tissues with low oxygenation, such as your cervical facial or lumpy jaw, which is dental trauma or poor oral hygiene in the pelvic region from sometimes IUDs, abdominal region from surgery or bowel trauma, thoracic from aspiration with contiguous spread, or your CNS causing solitary brain abscesses. How you can differentiate actinomyces and nocardia because they're both branching rods. Actinomyces is anaerobic and nocardia is aerobic. And another thing, actinomyces is a solitary brain abscess, but nocardia has multiple foci or foci. You identify this by gram-positive branching bacilli in sulfur granules. Actinomyces colonies resemble molar teeth. If you act up, you start to amp up. And so you give actinomyces ampicillin. You give ampicillin for actinomyces. Or you can also give penicillin G and of course surgical drain, which is very important. Genus, nocardia, it's aerobic and partially acid fast. So nocardia is the only one that's partially acid fast. It's a gram-positive filament breaking up into rods. The species that we're talking about with nocardia is nocardia asteroides and nocardia brasiliensis. Nocardia asteroides and nocardia brasiliensis. It's aerobic, gram-positive branching rods, partially acid fast, and its reservoir is soil and dust. The transmission is airborne or traumatic transplantation. No toxins or virulence factors are known for nocardia, but immunosuppression and cancer predispose you to pulmonary infection with nocardia. When we get the disease for nocardia, we call it nocardiosis. Basically causes cavitary bronchopulmonary nocardiosis, mostly nocardia asteroides. And then it can be acute, subacute, or chronic, and you'll get your usual pulmonary symptoms of cough, fever, dyspnea. But this one causes cavitation. If the pneumonia can either be localized or diffuse, but you'll see cavitation with no cardia. And they may spread hematogenously to the brain and cause a brain abscess. No cardia, multiple foci in the brain abscess, as opposed to your mectinomyces, which is a single solitary brain abscess. But no cardia can also cause cutaneous or subcutaneous nocardiosis, and that's usually caused by nocardia brasiliensis, asteroides for the pulmonary, brasiliensis for the cutaneous or the subcutaneous. It starts with traumatic implantation. Your symptoms are cellulitis with swelling. Then you have a draining abscess or a draining subcutaneous abscess with granules and then mycetoma. You diagnose it through your culture of sputum and or you can culture the pus from the cutaneous lesion. And you treat no cardia with sulfonamides. Treat no cardia with sulfonamides or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Because nocardia is a gram-positive filamentous bacilli, aerobic, partially acid-fast, you treat nocardia with sulfonamides, high dose, or TMPSMX. And remember, nocardia can cause cavitary bronchopulmonary disease or mycetomas. Cavitary bronchopulmonary nocardiosis by your nocardia asteroides, the mycetoma, which is your cellulitis with your granules, is caused by your nocardia brasiliensis. <laughs>
The next genus is Mycobacterium. Genus Mycobacterium. It's acid fast rods with a waxy cell wall. It's an obligate aerobe, and the cell wall is unique. The cell wall is unique because it has high concentration of lipids containing long chain fatty acids called mycolic acids. The wall makes mycobacteria highly resistant to desiccation, so it keeps its fluid in it. It's resistant to many chemicals, including sodium hydroxide that's used to kill other bacteria in sputa before neutralizing and culturing. So what you see with the cell wall is you'll see your polypeptides, your free lipids, which is your waxes, your mycocides, your, you have your cord factor in there, your arabinogalactin and mycolate, arabinogalactin mycolate, peptidoglycan trilayer, then you have your cytoplasm or your cytoplasmic membrane. So from the top, you have your polypeptides and your free lipids, which is your waxes, your mycosides, your cord factor, arabinogalactin mycolate, your peptidoglycan trilayer below that, and your cytoplasmic membrane. So you see how that cell wall is crazy. The waxes, the mycosides, and the cord factor are very hydrophobic. But mycobacterium is sensitive to ultraviolet light. You gotta worry about a bunch of mycobacterium. It's mycobacterium tuberculosis, leprae, avium intracellulari, kansasi, scrofulaceum, and marinum. But with mycobacterium tuberculosis, it's high risk in patients or in patients with poverty, HIV positive or IV drug users, chronic cough, weight loss. You get a gone complex that you gotta worry about. You do oramine rhodamine staining and acid fast bacilli and sputum. They produce niacin, heat sensitive catalase. You'll get a positive DT test or your PPD test and it's facultatively intracellular. And when I say positive DTH test that is otherwise known as the Mantu technique because DTH stands for delayed type hypersensitivity and when it's a delayed type hypersensitivity what type of hypersensitivity reaction am I looking at? The answer is type 4 hypersensitivity. All right, let me break that down on what I just said. I just gave you the main points of mycobacterium tuberculosis. It's distinguishing features. You do an aramine rhodamine stain, which will show fluorescent apple green. No antibodies are involved. It's sensitive, but not specific though. Mycobacterium tuberculosis is acid fast. It's aerobic, but it's slow growing on your Lowenstein Jensen medium. New culture systems are brought so the palmitic acid are faster. Mycobacterium tuberculosis produces niacin. Niacin. It also produces a heat-sensitive catalase. It's catalase-negative at 68 degrees Celsius, which is your catalase, your standard catalase test. But its catalase is sneaky because its catalase is active at body temperature. Its reservoir is your human lungs, and you transmit it through respiratory droplets. This facultative intracellular organism has sulfatides or sulfolipids in the cell envelope, which inhibit phagosome lysosome fusion. It allows it to survive in the cells. If the fusion does occur, there's a waxy nature of the cell envelope that reduces its killing effect. Then it has a cord factor, trehalose dimycolate. Again, the cord factor is aka trehalose dimycolate. It's serpentine growth in vitro and it inhibits leukocyte migration. It disrupts your mitochondrial respiration and your oxidative phorylation. Phew, that cord factor is sneaky. 
Now, tuberculin. It also has tuberculin, which is a surface protein, along with your mycolic acid. Mycobacteria, mycolic acid. My, my. Delayed hypersensitivity and cell-mediated immunity is in danger from the tuberculin. So with the tuberculin, you'll see your granulomas and your caseation mediated by CMI, and you don't see any exotoxins or endotoxins from the tuberculin. The damage is done by the immune system. The damage is done by your immune system. Because of your cell-mediated immunity by tuberculin. Alright, so diseases. You get either a primary pulmonary tuberculosis or reactivational tuberculosis. So with your primary pulmonary tuberculosis, TB will replicate in your naive alveolar macrophages, killing the macrophages until your cell-mediated immunity is set up. That's why we have a GONE focus. The macrophages transport the bacilli to the regional lymph node, otherwise known as your GONE complex, and most people will heal without disease. Mark, what the heck is a GONE complex? Mark, what the heck is a gonon complex? Alright, so when I say gone, it's basically a lesion that's seen in the lung that's caused by tuberculosis. So a gone focus comes along with your pulmonary lymphadenopathy within a nearby pulmonary lymph node, and it retains viable bacteria. And it's the source for your long-term infection, and it may reactivate and trigger secondary tuberculosis later in your life because organisms are walled within it and it can remain viable unless if you treat it. Alright, so what is reactivational tuberculosis? This erosion with granulomas into the airways, it's high in oxygen later in life. So basically, you'll get your reactivation more in your apex area of your lung because of the high oxygen content under conditions of reduced T-cell immunity, which leads to mycobacteria replication and disease symptoms. T-cell immunity is very important to prevent reactivational tuberculosis. That's why with patients with bad or low T-cell immunity, like patients with HIV, tuberculosis is very common. Reactivational tuberculosis is very complex, and it has a potential to infect any organ system that may disseminate, and we call that miliary tuberculosis. How do you diagnose this, and how do you find this? You, micros you do a microscopy of your sputum. You screen it with your oramine rhodamine stain, which is your fluorescent apple green. No antibodies involved. It's very sensitive. If positive, you confirm it with an acid fast stain. We screen with a PPD skin test, or the other known as your MAN2 skin test, and you'd measure the zone of induration 48 to 72 hours, positive if it's more than 5 millimeters in HIV positive, or more than 10 millimeters in high-risk populations such as your IV drug users, your people living in poverty, or immigrants from a high TB area. If you're a part of a low-risk population, it's more than 15 millimeters. A positive skin test indicates only exposure, but not necessarily active disease. Quantiferon TB gold test measures the the interferon gamma production when leukocytes expose to TB antigens. And you know what the big culprit is at that TNF-alpha production? It's cord factor. Cord factor which creates your serpentine cord appearance and virulent tuberculosis strains which activates the macrophages or the macrophages and then promotes granuloma formation. And cord factor also induces your tissue necrosis factor alpha. And remember, another thing to remember is sulfatides or your sulfoglycolipids inhibit your phagolysosomal fusion. What's the word? Sulfatides. And I'm just repeating everything because repetition is key to retaining information. 
How do we treat it? You use multiple drugs to treat the infection. This is a bad bugger. You observe standard short-term therapy for uncomplicated pulmonary TB. The first two months, you give them isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethamutol. We use the acronym PYRE for the first two months. PYRE for pyrazinamide, isoniazid, rifampin, and ethambutol. The next four months, you use isoniazid and rifampin alone. You can also use ethambutol or streptomycin and add it for possible drug-resistant cases until your susceptibility tests come back. Or, if the area has acquired more than 4% drug resistance to mycobacteria, you prevent TB by taking isoniazid for 9 months in persons with infection but no clinical symptoms. You give the BCG vaccine or the Bacillacalmet-Gerin vaccine, and the BCG vaccine has live attenuated organisms, live attenuated organisms, which may prevent disseminated disease, but that's not used in the US. You use UV lights or HEPA filters to treat potentially contaminated air. There is Mycobacteria other than tuberculosis, or your MOTS, right? M-O-T-T-S, mycobacteria other than tuberculosis. That's basically your atypical mycobacteria. It's not contagious. It's found in surface water, soil, cigarettes, and found common in southeastern United States. Runyon terminology divides the group on the base of production of carotenoid pigments. Photochromogens produce pigment after exposure to light. Scotochromogens are produced pigment in the dark, and non-chromogens are produced with no pigment. So what are MOTs? MOTs are consisted of four other mycobacteria, which is your Mycobacterium intracellulare, Mycobacterium avium intracellulare, Mycobacterium kansasii, or kansasi, whatever, whichever pronunciation you prefer, Mycobacterium scrofulaceum or Mycobacterium marinum. Mycobacterium avium intracellulare causes pulmonary or gastrointestinal symptoms that are disseminated, and its transition, of course, is your respiratory ingestion. You can see Mycobacterium avium intracellulare in your AIDS patients, chronic cancer patients, and your chronic lung disease patients. Now, when I told you earlier that it's divided into the different chromogens, Mycobacterium avium intracellulare is a non chromogen and you treat it with AIDS patients you give them prophylaxis and AIDS patients are at risk for this and you give them prophylaxis of macrolides plus your ethambutol if the patient or your HIV patient has a CD4 count of less than 50 cells per cubic meter you give the patient azithromycin or clarithromycin again azithromycin or clarithromycin for mycobacterium avium complex. That's different when your patient is less than 100 or less than 200 when you give them TMP-SMX for pneumocystis pneumonia or possible pneumocystis or toxoplasmosis. So remember, mycobacterium avium complex is different. You give azithromycin or clarithromycin. Mycobacterium kansasii or kansasii <laughs> is the same thing though with mycobacterium avium intracellular. It's pulmonary, gastrointestinal, it can be disseminated, it's transmitted through respiratory or ingestion, and you can also see kansasii or kansasi through with your AIDS patients and your patients with cancer or chronic lung disease. But the difference between your avium intracellulare and kansas is kansas is a photo
proto-chromogen, while avium intracellulare is non-chromogen. Remember, Kansas is sunshiny day. It has a photochromogen, and because there's sunshine in Kansas, there's pigment that's produced after exposure to light. Mycobacterium avium intracellulare and Mycobacterium kansasii. You give prophylaxis for both of them when patients are less than 50. So it's just the same one, right, as avium intracellulare. It is a macrolide, which is either your azithromycin or clarithromycin. Our next bacteria is Mycobacterium scrofulaceum, which causes lymphadenitis due to contaminated water sources. And with scrofulaceum, you can get a solitary cervical lymph nodes, which are in kids. Usually you'll see this in kids. And in the Runyon terminology with MOTS, it's diagnosed through scotochromogens. Scrofulaceum scotochromogens. As for us, right? A scrotochromogen is a pigment that's produced in the dark. A scrotochromogen is a pigment that's produced in the dark. And you treat Mycobacterium scrofulaceum by surgery. Mycobacterium marinarum. Marinarum is a soft tissue infection and it is and it causes fish tank granuloma or Mott's disease. Its transmission is through abrasions. Marinarum going to the marina. I mean, that should give you a clue, right? And that's cutaneous granulomas in tropical fish enthusiasts. And when you go to the beach, you like the sun, right? So, so it's diagnosed through photochromogens produced pigment after exposure to light. How you treat it is with, with INH, rifampin, or ethambutol. The next one we have to worry about is Mycobacterium leprae, acid fast rod seen in punch biopsy. It's an obligate intracellular, but it cannot be cultured in vitro. Obligate intracellular. So you gotta add that to your RCC, which is your Rickettsia chlamydia coxiella, and your Mycobacterium leprae. Your optimal growth is at less than body temperature at 37 degrees Celsius, so it likes the cold or cool surfaces. The human mucosa or the skin and the nerves are the most significant reservoirs. And there are some infected armadillos in Texas and Louisiana. Ew. Stay away from armadillos, man. The transmission is a nasal discharge from untreated lepromatous or leprosy patients. Of course, a disease is leprosy. It's a continuum of disease, which usually starts out with an indeterminate stage called the borderline stage. It's usually an immigrant patient with sensory loss and extremities. All right, so you have two extreme forms. You have your tuberculoid and your lepromatous. Tuberculoid versus lepromatous. First of all, the tuberculoid is because of a strong cell-mediated immunity, and that's a Th1 immunity, T helper cell 1 immunity, while lepromatous is weak cell mediate immunity and that's your T helper 2 cells. Let's correlate that with our immunology chapter a little bit. With the Th1 cells, it secretes your interferon gamma and your IL-2. And th those secretions will activate macrophages and your cytotoxic T cells, which shows a strong cell-mediated immune response. But with Th2, what Th2 does is it releases interleukin-4, interleukin-5, and interleukin-10. And if you remember from your, your immunology chapter, interleukin-4 increases your IgE, interleukin-5 increases your IgA, while interleukin-10 decreases your MHC2 expression and your Th1 cytokines. Interleukin-10 interleukin attenuates the inflammatory response, and it inhibits activation of your macrophages and your dendritic cells. And that's why lepromatous is so bad, because th these B cells can do nothing about the Mycobacterium leprae bacilli. The Mycobacterium leprae escapes the humoral mechanism, 
mechanisms. And that shows you that there's a low or weak cell-mediated response that you need, and that's why you get a lepromatous, otherwise known as a multi-bacillary leprosy. Let's differentiate between the two even more. And let's remember that tuberculoid is the good one and the easier one to deal with. In tuberculoid leprosy, you can also see it in the skin testing. You can do a lepromin skin test and that will be a positive, while lepromatous leprosy is a negative lepromin test. Promatous is harder to deal with. Lepromatous is a negative lepromin skin test. In tuberculoid, the number of organisms in your tissue is low because there is some killing going on, while your TH2s aren't doing anything. And what you get with your TH2-led response is your high number of organisms in your tissue and your foam cells are totally filled. In your tuberculoid leprosy, your re immune response is good, which your cell-mediated killing infected cells is working. And there is still granuloma formation with nerve damage and a loss of sensation, but with your lepromatous, there's a large number of intracellular organisms that cause the nerve damage from your bacterial overgrowth in the cells and its loss of sensation as well but on a greater degree. The number of lesions in tuberculoid obviously is fewer and it's macular. You have nerve enlargement which causes paresthesia. In lepromatous, you have numerous lesions becoming nodular. You have loss of your eyebrows, your destruction of your nasal septum, like you lose your nose, literally. There's paresthesia and leonine fasces, you look really bad with lepromatous. So Mark, how does Mycobacterium leprae cause so much nerve damage? Mycobacterium leprae attacks your Schwann cells. They have this thing called phenolic glycolipin 1. Phenolic glycolipin 1. Which is a virulence factor. That phenolic glycolipin 1, or PGL1, attaches to a protein on the Schwann cell called laminin 1. Laminin 1. So your phenolic glycolipin 1 or PGL1 attaches to laminin 1 and that causes demyelination of your nerves. You can diagnose leprosy through punch biopsy or nasal scrapings with acid fast stain and those stains are zeal-nielsen, kenyan staining, or your oramine-rhodamine stain. You can also do your lepromin test which is positive for what? It's positive for tuberculoid and negative for lepromatous. Lepromatous is so bad, you can't even do a simple lepromid skin test and find out if it's leprosy. And you don't do cultures with it, obviously. It does grow easily on armadillo, so if you can find an armadillo that you can inoculate mycobacterium with, that would make it easier for you. <laughs> so how do we treat it? We treat it with our patients with multi-drug therapy, right? Dapsone and rifampin. And if it's lepromatous, which is the bad one, we give clofazamine. And if we're correlating with our pharmacology, your dapsone is related to stopping your folic acid synthesis. It competes with PABA or your paraaminobenzoic acid, therefore blocking your dihydroopterate synthase. Rifampin blocks your mRNA synthesis by blocking RNA polymerase. And your clofazamine, which you add for lepromatous leprosy, binds guanine bases and blocks DNA template function. And it also increases phospholipase A2. So while you treat TB with those four, which are your pyre antimicrobials, P for pyrazinamide, I for isoniazid, R for rifampin, E for ethambutol, in leprosy, you treat it with your doctor. Doctor, DR, Dapsone, and Rifampin, and you add Clofazamine if you have your Lepromatous form. Repetition is key! 
That concludes USMLE Listen Microbiology Chapter 4. Whether you're on a run or driving, this is the perfect podcast to initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. As always, you can email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need cleared, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. This is Mark Labella. You can follow or message me on Instagram at M-A-R-K-J-L. A-B-E-L-L-A or Mark J. LaBella. We'll see you next time here at USMLE Listen.